From Stanford University and KZSU, this is the Stanford Storytelling Project. If you have every song represented by a tiny white dot on a piece of black paper, for example, you would end up having something that looks like the Milky Way galaxy. We begin tonight's show with my dad. There's a newspaper that's published called the Daily Racing Forum, which contains all of the information about the past performances of every horse in every race at each track throughout the country. That's him. His name's Bob. And you should remember that paper, the Daily Racing Forum. And I would see everybody at the track studying this information, and I thought that Frankie and the guys at the bar were just great at being able to determine who was in good shape to win. Okay, and this is New York, 1972. My dad's a sophomore at Berkeley living with a friend of his for the summer. Frankie and the guys at the bar were mobsters. I think most of them made their living by hijacking trucks coming out of Kennedy Airport. Mobsters who gave my dad's friend Andy a tip on a horse, a tip that Andy then passed on to my dad. At the time, I'd been working as a cab driver for a month. I probably had about $50 saved up towards my goal of a couple thousand dollars. And so when Andy told me that um, uh, to look for this horse X the third, I was really interested, although I didn't know anything at all about horse racing. I didn't know where to look or what odds meant or what was going to happen. What happened was this. The horse, X the third, won. And in about two minutes, my dad tripled what he'd worked a month to make as a cab driver. He was hooked. He thought that the mobsters had used information from the daily racing form to pick horses. So the feeling besides winning the money was one of absolutely being astounded that These guys were able to tell us something that produced this huge amount of money and predicted a particular outcome. I thought it was so remarkable that anybody was able to create money out of knowledge. How did these guys know this? The answer to that question took my dad on a nearly two-year journey to the beer-crusted seats of various racetracks, the seedy heart of Las Vegas, and the very bowels of probability theory. But first thing was first. He had to learn the fundamentals of the sport of kings. Horse racing works on what's called a paramutual system. That's P-A-R-I-M-U-T-U-E-L. What it means is that odds, that is to say the chance of winning, and the amount paid if you do win, are determined by the bettors themselves. The logic goes like this. The horse with the least amount of money bet on it probably won't win, otherwise more people would have picked it. And the horse with the most money bet on it probably will win, and that's why it's so popular. The problem is, bets on the most popular horse pay the least when that horse wins, and conversely bets on the long shots pay much better but of course pay off far less frequently. So what people do when they're trying to actually win money at the track is pick horses that have a better chance of winning than their odds represent. If the odds say a horse has a 1 in 5 chance of winning, but you know it's got a 1 in 2 chance, then you have what's known in gambling circles as a good bet.
But how can anyone find these good bets? How would anyone know which horse had a better chance of winning than the odds predicted? Well, that's the question my dad tried to answer. He built a computer program that analyzed every variable from the daily racing form and told him which horses to bet on on the next day's race. It worked, too. It made him money. But the problem was, even in something like horse racing, where there's data on every variable you can imagine, there are still going to be a few that you miss. There will always be factors you forgot to take into account, and events you could not foresee. And those unforeseen events, those unimaginable variables, they sink you. The variables, imaginable and unimaginable. That's where we're starting our show today, Prediction. Stories of people who try to make sense of the variables and why their efforts never quite turn out as planned. Our first story is about the science of hit prediction, one company that claims it can predict the commercial success of any song you give them. Second, we'll listen in on a couple conversations as a Stanford economics student tries to figure out just what it is that economics can predict. Last, we'll come back to my dad to hear the story of how he did something unheard of using prediction. Beat the racetrack. All those stories coming to you this hour. Stick around. Some people will tell you all pop music sounds the same. And to an extent, that's true. There's a lot of money in the business and not a whole lot of room for risk. So record companies make safe bets. When a certain sound gets big, say boy bands or rap metal, the record companies rush to cash in on the trend. It's an inexact science. And no one really knows why some trends blow up for a year or two and then just as suddenly die out. And even figuring out what makes one a hit and another a dud is a job that makes talent scouts pull their hair out. But fortunately, or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, hit prediction has gotten a whole lot more scientific. And a whole crop of new companies are claiming they can predict the commercial success of any song just by analyzing it with a computer program. Our next story, called Are You a Hit, explores this strange intersection of technology and art, and in the process, sheds some light on just what record companies think we're looking for in a song. Picture this. A phenomenal garage band is trying to make it in the music industry. They pound on record companies' doors, run after record executives they see at concerts, but are always turned away without so much as a smile. Why? Because a software that can supposedly predict massive hits doesn't give them a good rating. Too far-fetched, do you think? The software already exists, and out of the top songs on the charts right now, one and four have already been run through it. I first found out about the software when a friend of mine showed me the website hitsongscience.com where you can submit mp3s and they rate your song for hit potential. It sounded cool at first, but soon I began to worry. 
In the novel 1984, George Orwell made the ominous prediction that popular music would be computer-generated, devoid of human input. I fear that this software was taking society one step closer to the dystopia Orwell foresaw. I feared that the freedom and creativity that have for so long been a hallmark of the music industry would disappear. I wondered if the future of the music industry would be dependent on formulas rather than art. I feared that the human ear would become obsolete, replaced by the silicon chips that comprise a computer's insensate brain. I would have to say I find it to be a little bit scary. They almost can't predict something that's very human. I think of music as more of a feeling than anything else, and that's why this model is a bit difficult for me to accept as a standard. With these fears echoing in my head, I set out to find out about this software and to discover how bad it really is and what this means for the music industry. I was skeptical that the software even worked, but was fearful of what it meant if it did. Software rates songs on a 1 to 10 logarithmic scale, with anything above a 7 qualifying as a hit. And the company boasts an 80% success rate, four times that of top music professionals. Could this really be true? I wanted to try it out, even though I realized that there was really no way for me to definitively evaluate it. Still, by talking to the artists before and after their evaluation, I could gauge how the rating system would affect the morale of an artist. I approached my friend who had originally shown me the website. Koji Gardner, a sophomore at Stanford University, plays the guitar and had been part of a high school band that really played music for the sake of playing music. Being able to play, first of all, stuff I hear on the radio was very satisfying. And then once I got a little bit better and more technical writing my own songs and putting them to a beat with drums and stuff is just a really cool feeling. His drummer, Ian Burrell, who is currently a junior at the University of Georgia, agrees that he and Koji really play for the pure fun of it. For me, it's the most fun I have, just uh, uh, jamming, just with uh, the guitar and the drums, and it's just, it's just the most fun thing in the world for me. I asked them if they'd be interested in running a song on the software, and they gave me one of their favorites, a song called Unconscious. Could it be a hit? We'll see what Hit Song Science has to say. In the meantime, I wanted to know how the rating system would affect Koji and Ian. It's not going to make us change the way we play. It's not going to change the music or um, the type of songs we play. I think uh, uh, whatever it says, I think it'll just affect us for like maybe 
maybe the next hour that we think about it. So, and then after that, we'll just go back to just doing what we want to do. So maybe artists that just play for fun won't pay very much attention to the software because fundamentally they don't care very much if they have a hit or not. But what about artists that want to make it big? I wondered how they would feel about the software and how the hit song science report might affect them differently. So I contacted Jadena, a junior at Stanford who's an up-and-coming rap artist. Here's how he introduces himself. So once upon a time in a, in a Strahood city where, where the bras never kept bra straps on their titties, there's one little boy who went by the name of Chief because his, his father was the chief. And his name would be the same name as me, Jadena, which means embracing the father. I knew that Jadenum wanted to become a big-time player in the rap industry, but I wanted to know what really drives him. I feel like if I wasn't doing music, I would have no other purpose. I believe that my music is needed uh, for the world, so it's really just somehow it's extra force that keeps me up all night producing. Um, a, lot of, a lot of my environment, it's like a lot of my environment that I'm around, it, it causes me uh, to have a passion to make change. And I believe the greatest way to make change right now is to be a hip-hop. Jadena was also open to submitting a song to the website and chose a personal favorite, In the Bottle. He don't quit his nine to five, imagine this one on the radio? I asked him how a good score would affect him. It definitely would give me more more strength to continue making uh, music and also to continue making music I would listen to it and pay attention to it and try to mimic the song. And a poor score? I would probably not listen to it. <laughs> I love, Like I said I love my music so um, and I'm also stubborn and I think a lot of musicians are. And I would just, I would just, uh, I would just keep going and making music, and I, I would still make a song that would sound like the song I submitted, since the song I submitted I like. Oh. Too busy for commitment, so I'm pimping them just like Clinton. I'm swift man, a hit man in three ways: hit jams, hit dames, hit lames. I don't like piss me off, my piss on you. I drank too much, what you gonna do? I'm living in a bottle. So for spare time enjoyment or in search of fame and fortune, they've written their song, recorded it, and are ready to share it with the world. But will it be a hit? Well, the hit song science way, you could know with the click of a mouse. But what sort of mathematical and scientific experiment will the songs go through? Because we can break down a song into its component. Mike McCready, CEO of Polyphonic HMI, the company that produces hit song science, explains can analyze a, 
a song for melody, harmony, beat, tempo, rhythm, octave, pitch, chord progression, fullness of sound, sonic brilliance. There are about 30 different variables that we look. So when you if you have every song represented by a tiny white dot on a piece of black paper, for example, you would end up having something that looks like the Milky Way galaxy. Pretty weird, I thought. And if all the songs ever created are in this galaxy of music, where are the hits? I pressed McCready for the answer. When you remove, when you go back and then remove all of the songs that have not been in the uh, top 30 over the past five years, you end up with uh, what look like a bunch of clusters all over that universe with all of these spaces between them. So when we analyze um, new music, we simply look to see if the new songs fall inside those already pre-established clusters or if they fall outside into the, the open spaces of the universe. And uh, that's a kind of a visual way that we, that we can see um, if a song has hit potential or not. McCready told me that songs in any given cluster were mathematically similar, but might not sound anything alike. For example, the song If I Can't by rapper 50 Cent is in the same cluster as There's No Getting Over Me by country artist Ronnie Millsap. Here's the 50 Cent. Now listen to Ronnie Millsap. Well, you can walk out on me tonight If you think that it ain't feeling right But darling I wondered what the limitations of the software were. McCready. Our software can never tell you if a song sounds like a hit. Uh, that's that's, an, that's a human evaluation. Our technology has no common sense. It can find mathematical hit potential in a six-minute-long instrumental played on the accordion. I mean, and your common sense has to tell you that that kind of a song is never going to be successful in the market as a hit single. Now that I knew a little bit about the software and what it does, I looked up the evaluations of the artists we talked to earlier. Here's the song that Koji and Ian submitted. to 6.42, which doesn't cut it as far as hit song science is concerned, but is still closer to a 7, the threshold for a hit, than the artists were expecting. Originally, Koji and Ian had been skeptical about the software, and I wondered if this score would change their thoughts about it. Ian Burrell. I don't think we'll think about this rating at all when we come up with new songs, I think. Uh, we'll just play what sounds good to us and what and uh, just do what we have fun doing, and I, I hope it stays that way. But speaking to them, it was clear that all this talk about hits had changed their thinking about their music. Koji Gardner. Maybe to try to write more songs like this rather than what we were doing in the past, which was sort of just stuff we thought that sounded good and you know, maybe a little bit technical and stuff, but not necessarily songs that we felt were really catchy. 
just the fact that it feels good to write music for ourselves, but also if other people like it too, you know, just friends and family even. If it's a catchy song, then they'll like it more too. So I feel writing more songs in this style, if this really is a style, um, yeah, so maybe that'll affect the way we do things. For Koji and Ian, having their song run didn't change their skeptical attitude toward the software, but it did seem to change their priorities as musicians. They now seemed more focused on how others perceived their music. For Jadena, his song, In the Bottle, Well, it ranked very high with a score of 6.93. And not only that, but the software indicates that if it were to be released right now, it would have a staggering hit potential of 8.35. According to Hit Song Science, a definite hit. Listen carefully. You might be hearing this on the radio soon. So how will this affect his career? I'll take him to either a record label or a manager or something um, as a, I guess, scientific proof to the faith that is behind my music. Um, just because it's good music, like I said, and the people need that right now. For artists that want to make it big in the industry, this software seems to have a profound effect on them, at least in this case. And Jadena is certainly optimistic about how this score will help him reach more people. Will it work? We'll keep you posted. I had feared that musicians would be somehow corrupted by this technology, but this didn't seem to be the case. Neither of the artists I spoke to wanted to write music for the score, but instead remained enthusiastic about their style throughout the process. Musicians, it seems, will always stay true to artistic creativity. I wondered how the software would affect the music industry at large. Hit song science, as like any tool, can be used for good or bad. And, say, you know, you can use this technology to make homogenous, formulaic-sounding, cookie-cutter music. Um, there's no denying that, you can, that you, you can do that. But you can also use the technology to push the envelope of creativity and to take sonic risks in the studio, but we can show the producer and the label and the artist that uh, actually what they're doing does conform to these particular mathematical patterns that are going to find acceptance in the market uh, in this way or this other way. Um, and we can help music labels discover artists that um, they wouldn't normally want to sign because they would be perceived as too risky. 
Maybe he has a point, and maybe it'll just be another gadget at the producer's disposal, not the beginning of a silicon complex that will replace humans. Humans have been using computers for a long time to evaluate many different things, and applying it to music may not be as bad as I originally thought. To discuss the topic, I've made an appointment with Eleanor Selfridge Field, a consulting professor of music and symbolic systems at Stanford University. Certainly there's still uh, people trained in uh, conventional music subjects who have a great many reservations about computers. But in fact, in music, an awful lot of people are, are using computers for different things. I think there are a lot of good things coming out of this. What did you say? As I think back on all the research I've done, what seems most apparent to me is how much of an impact hit prediction software is going to have on the music industry. Already, the product is filtering over 25% of the music that makes it to the top charts. Nora Jones and Maroon 5 are both examples of artists who are deemed hits by the software long before they became household names. And others are starting to make prediction software. A small group at Hewlett Packard emulated the software, and someone else in the media labs at MIT recently announced a hit prediction software. McCready says that he imagines in a few years he will be selling the product to a large-scale company like Microsoft, Universal, AOL, or Google. Want to know what I think? I think this software has the potential to bring us music fans more interesting and more appealing music. Software like this could open up the music industry to unique artists who sound great but appear too risky. And as long as musicians, not computers, are the ones who are creating the music, I don't think we really need to worry about losing the soul of music. Maybe it's too early to tell. But in my opinion, it would be rash to dismiss this software as an evil of technology. Imagine there's no heaven. Seize if you try. No hell below us. Above us only. That piece was produced by Sarah and Sam, who are currently undergraduates at Stanford University.
No one saw it coming. Or a lot of people saw it coming, but just not the right people. All the signs were there, but no one read them right. There are a lot of different explanations for why economics couldn't prevent us from getting into the crisis we're in now. Cassie McClenahan, an economics student here at Stanford, talked to two economists to learn just what the dismal science can and can't tell us about the future. I teach financial engineering at the business school at Berkeley and was at the World Bank for a couple of years. So how, how good do you think that economics is at prediction? Depends on in what circumstances. In sort of relatively, quote, normal times when, uh, you know, sort of you're not in the middle of a financial crisis or about to run into one. It's not too hard because in sort of, you know, quote, regular times, those things don't move wildly. They move in relatively predictable ways. And when the world sort of changes dramatically in a short period of time, then it becomes extremely difficult to, you know, bring any kind of accuracy to what do I think is going to happen next month. Okay, this seemed to make sense, but it was also kind of obvious. Things are easy to predict during predictable times. So I pushed him on it. But doesn't that seem like kind of a cop-out? Like, you know, we, we, we can predict things when they, like, follow nice straight lines. But, I mean, fundamentally, like, most people can look at a straight line and see where it's going. You know, they, I'm not sure you, you, you could argue that... Sure. You know, but that's the definition honest. of uncertainty, right? If I can't, you know, if a big part of oil prices, for instance, is uh, if someone blows up a pipeline in Nigeria you know, the oil price goes up by 25%. That's a, an event that has some probability of happening, but if it, you know, whether it happens or not is sort of the definition of uncertainty, right? And sort of when that, you know, there's no way for an economist sitting in New York to, uh, to say that pipeline is going to get blown up on Tuesday and therefore the oil price is going to go up, right? Or if he does, you should probably, you know, talk to that economist a little bit more and find <laughs> out what, what he does on the side. fields where you're expected to make predictions, things often behave in reliable ways. The laws of physics never really change. If I drop a ball, it will fall at the same rate every time. But falling prices are another matter entirely. The rules of our economy are constantly changing. When you're dealing with the economy, you're dealing with the reactions and emotions of people, which are inherently unreliable. This is especially true in today's economic climate. So how can an economist be expected to predict things when there are so many variables? The, pipe, the pipeline getting blown up in Nigeria is sort of idiosyncratic in the sense that you know there's some probability that it's going to happen, but there's nothing, no information I could use unless I sort of really know what's going on in that world and know people's plans to forecast when that pipeline gets blown up. The accusations flying around are, oh, well, you said things would go down, but, but you know, you said they would go down by X and they really went down by a hundred times that much or something. And... Getting at that, get in such an incredibly complicated world, particularly in a crisis type of environment, it's uh, it's just extraordinarily difficult to to uh, you know build a model that's sufficiently complex to take into account all of the sources of risk that we do or do not know about at any given point in time, and you know come up with a good forecast of what's going to happen sort of in six months. So it sounds like he's talking about two different kinds of unpredictable events. The first is like trying to predict a terrorist attack. Good luck with that. The other kind of event is really a combination of many events that we can predict, but all related together in an extremely complex way. So bear with me for a second. If we think of each one of these predictable events as a domino, we know it will either fall over or it won't. But then we set up a massive system of thousands of millions of dominoes. There's no telling what will happen if we knock one domino over. Maybe just that domino will fall. Or maybe...
kind of complex interconnected model that take into account huge webs of, of stuff are enormously computationally complex. And even though we think our computer technology is very fast today, it, uh, it, it's really not for answering those kind of questions, kind of quantitatively with any kind of precision. And you know, there are just sort of whole types of things that we don't even try to do as economists because we would it would take you know sort of from now until the end of the universe with current computing power to actually get you know the program back, and then there would be a bug in it anyway. So, so the idea, so from your perspective, then precision is theoretically possible, but not not today. Yeah. Yes. Uh, more well, more precision is theoretically possible. I don't know about you know, sort of ultimate precision. often just too many unpredictable variables to make accurate predictions. Some events just can't be predicted, like blowing up a pipeline. Other events could be computed, but only if you're willing to wait around until the end of the universe. When economists do make a prediction, they have to use very simplified models, and this simplification generates a lot of error. Maybe that's why economists often seem more interested in modeling past events rather than trying to predict what's coming next. But if that's the case, why form models at all? My talk with Ben was helpful, but it gave me a lot more to think about. I decided to try talking to my economics professor, Paul David, to see if he could clear some things up. I'm Paul David. I'm a professor of economics emeritus at Stanford. I've, I've been in the economics department uh, since 1961, which is a very long time. Uh, I came here in a covered wagon uh, from the East Coast. I have done a good bit of work predicting things that happened in the past. Um, that's not always easy to do. Um, it's basically the same uh, kind of work. It's trying to understand the structure of economic relationships and to do that well enough you know, to be able to test your explanation by uh, predicting uh, something which you can see whether it happened. Professor David seemed really into making models that explain the past. But I pushed him and asked him what his thoughts were on economists who make a living out of predicting the future. Here's what he thought about that. We are talking about predicting different kinds of things, okay? The person who says repeatedly every month in their newsletter, the world is coming to an end, there will be a tremendous gl worldwide global depression. Well, this is like the clock which is stopped at 10 o'clock. And there's going to be a point when they get it right. So he's saying either we admit we can't foresee the future, or we keep guessing until we get lucky. On the other hand, there is a very specific type of prediction that he asserted was valid, and it's very relevant to our current economic situation. This type of prediction doesn't tell us when a problem in the economy is going to happen, but it does tell us how to fix it. He explains with a light bulb. I like to think about that in the, uh, in the following way. If I ask you, do you know when the light bulb uh, on the bedside lamp uh, in your room is going to burn out? You would probably say no, haven't a clue. Um, uh, I could tell you that it's likely because of the rule of the survival of light bulbs that the probability of its burning out is uh, uh, constant. At each moment of time, it could just flicker out. Um, Okay, so you don't know when it's going to burn out. Now, if I asked you to uh, tell me whether it's possible for you to 
fix the light bulb once it's burned out by replacing it you would probably say yeah easy and uh, I could probably ask you how long would it take you uh, to fix that light bulb okay um, there are a lot of jokes about how many people it will take you okay so okay so the, because we don't know when something is going to happen doesn't mean that we don't know uh, anything about the process uh, once it's starting to happen that will uh, make it uh, happen, nor uh, are we ignorant about uh, the way in which you could remedy uh, what's happened. It's not unlike that uh, with, uh, with, with a, a different kind of complex system like the economy. This was starting to sound kind of like Ben's Nigerian pipeline story. In both cases, you have some event which has a probability of happening, but we don't know the exact timing of when the light will go out. But we now see that we do know how to fix it once it's broken. What Professor David is saying is also true of the current economic crisis. Even though economists couldn't predict the exact timing of the recession, maybe there is some wisdom in listening when they tell us how to fix it. There were a lot. There were people who were who were saying this, and some of them were academic uh, economists. Uh, inside every one of these banks, there were people who were saying, uh, "We have left behind all of the rules which used to um, control the amount of risk that we are taking." Uh, central bankers who take away the punch bowl uh, when the party is really going are not liked by the people who are at the party okay they get you know, they get criticized they get asked tough questions uh, by uh, the people in congress who the people whose punch bowl has been taken away uh, and so there's a tendency to not act on the news uh, that we're now sailing closer to the vortex of the hurricane problem doesn't lie completely with the economists. What my professor seems to be saying is that there are academic economists everywhere making predictions that could be useful. It seems like before the economic crisis, the warnings were there, but because economists couldn't state a specific timeline, and because their advice is often against what will help banks and, and companies make money, their predictions were ignored. It wasn't what people wanted to hear. It makes you wonder, would we be in such a deep recession if we had listened to the guy trying to take away our punch bowl? So here's what I learned. If we gave economists infinite time and infinite computing power, they could perfectly predict the economy. But they don't. So maybe people and economists alike should just stop worrying about when the light bulb is going to fizzle and focus instead on how to screw in a new one. Hey, you worry warts, everything's going to be all right. Or uh, it's, it's going to be, uh, well, thanks anyway to our producers, Daniel McDougall and Cassie McClenahan for that piece.
last story of the night. We're going to go back to my dad's story where the rest of the people variables beat the racetrack. When we left him, my dad had just won a lot of money by betting on a horse some mobsters had tipped him off to. A little bit later that summer, he got another tip and won again. He thought the mobsters were great at analyzing the daily racing form and predicting which horses would win, but the truth was a little bit different. What, what I now know that these guys were doing was either paying off the jockeys or giving some type of drugs to these horses in order to make them win. If he'd known that then, that the mobsters had fixed the races, my dad might never have tried to beat the racetrack. But he didn't, and so he did. First thing he did was go to the books. All of them. People, there was, there was, there was probably hundreds of books. How to beat the races, winning formula for beating the races, um, um, uh, the can't lose horse race betting system of the century, the power bet system, the, the complete guide to horse racing systems. There was literally hundreds of books about this. And I think I read all of those books. None of these books were any good, though. They seemed like they work because they were retrofitted onto races from the past. But when it came to predicting the next day's winners, they were lousy. They did help in one way, though. They taught my dad that any system for beating the track would have to be able to predict the future. This has been tried before, as the hundreds of books he read attested to. But my dad had two things that set him apart. A willingness to devote the better part of two years toward achieving this goal, and a computer. The first thing that I wanted to do was hire a computer programmer and I put up a sign at the um, computer center at Berkeley and um, the sign said wanted computer programmer to work on beating the racetrack or something and within a day or two I received a reply from a um, PhD student there well, this guy called me. His name was Patel. He was um, deep into his PhD thesis on something involving computer programming. And he was very interested in what my thoughts were. He asked me about what, what we would try to do and how we would try to do it. And with the idea being that um, he would try to develop a program that we could try to use for predicting the outcome. Patel, the math student, knew there was a technique they could use to solve the daily racing form. It was called multiple regression analysis. That might kind of sound like an intimidating term, but the basics of it are fairly easy to explain. Essentially, what a multiple regression analysis does is analyze a whole bunch of variables and then calculate how important each one is to another. In my dad's case, what they're trying to calculate was which statistics from the daily racing form would tell them which horse was going to win the next day's race. At first, all they had was a hypothesis. They didn't know for sure that this could be done. The next step was to put in the legwork. My problem at that point was, uh, in order to input that information, I had to get a hold of old racing forms and work from the old racing forms. And there was, I think I probably looked for, for a month before I found a source of a year's worth of old racing forms, which was in a place called the Gambler's Bookstore in Las Vegas. So I drove to Las Vegas and picked up a year's worth of, um, of old forms. Just for the hell of it, I checked online to see if the Gambler's Bookstore still existed. It did, and it does, so I decided to call someone there to see if they'd ever heard of anyone doing what my dad did. 
I got a hold of Howard Schwartz, the owner. My name is Howard Schwartz, spelled S-E-H-W-A-R-T-Z. I'm the owner of the Gambler's Bookshop here in Las Vegas. I told him about my dad to see what he thought. So I want to tell you a story. It happened in 1972. This is about to be honest, father. I wanted a reaction he from a third party. I wanted to know if what my dad did was as unbelievable as it sounded. Well, he might have stumbled on something or researched something that happened that somebody overlooked. But it, could he do it for more than a year? Did, how long did it work? Uh, for 20 years, 30 years? Somehow, these factors change. I'm not sure why. There's an adjustment. Somebody else notices it. I don't know what. But uh, uh, there is no system that's lasted forever that I know. There isn't any. If there was a system that worked consistently, I wouldn't be talking to you right now. I'd be at the track myself, just counting the money and with a blonde on each arm and make sure they could either spell meatloaf or cook it. But um, there is no one system that works. So it's just, it's, it's like harnessing lightning, like grabbing lightning. It's so difficult to do. Under Patel's instruction, I would take the forms every night over to the computer center and enter into the punch cards, punch out the punch cards, entering in about 126 different variables for every horse in the race. My dad had a girlfriend during this period of time. He was taking classes, he had a few friends, but nothing took up as much time in his life as this. It was all consuming. It was, it was interesting to me to see that I was willing to work so hard pursuing a particular result, that I was willing to be so disciplined and put aside everything else to become successful at this. He worked through September and October and November. The seasons changed, and he was still at it in the lab each night, punching cards. Through rain, through sleep, through the waning spirit of Vietnam War protests, my dad was in the lab. His girlfriend knew, but he kept it from most of his friends. The ones who he did tell would roll their eyes. And one day he told his father about it. I remember my father saying that um, he said that I was like an alchemist trying to spin water into gold. And that if this was something that could be done, somebody would have done it before, and that this project was really um, futile. One thing kept him going, the edge, the mathematical advantage that he could attain by predicting the outcome of the races. I felt that if any statistical edge could be achieved, it was unlimited the amount of money that could be made, millions of dollars, if we could make this thing successful. That was the dream, at least. In practice, my dad still had to make about 50,000 punch cards before they could even start to see if their system worked. So he kept at it. He punched and he punched, always keeping his eye on the edge, that vital edge their system, if it worked, would guarantee them. Then, one day, they were done. 
They had the 50,000 punch cards arranged and stacked in boxes at my dad's apartment. They took the cards to the computer lab, left their program with the guy there, went home and tried to sleep. This was the key moment. This was when they would find out if their hypothesis was correct, if there actually were some variables more important than others, if that edge even existed. The next day, they get to the computer center, and there's a note. We found the next morning that the job had been rejected because there was a piece of data out of place on one of the 50,000 punch cards. And so it was then a matter of spending several days trying to find the card with the error and redo that and um, put it through again. So what's that feel like when you see the error? It, it was a terrible feeling. All, all night long, you're kind of waiting to see what the results are. And you go there in the morning and you line up. And not only do you ha not have your results, but you know you've got to search through all these cards. By my dad's telling of the story, this happened 20 times, an almost unbelievable number. It took them months and months of trial and error and fixing the cards until... Finally, we felt like all the bugs were out and we ran it through and um, the next morning we got there and there was a complete printout of our results and um, all the information that we'd been looking for. So what, what, were, I mean, what did the results look like? What, what did they tell you? Well, at this point, what, what the results showed was um, uh, what's called a coefficient for each one of the variables. And, and that means that the computer was now predicting the importance of each one of the variables in determining the ultimate outcome of the race. The winner. The future. Except they weren't done. At this point, they were about halfway. They still needed to test their system on old races and see how it worked. So now it was back to the gambler's bookstore in Las Vegas to get another thousand races and back to the computer center every night to enter another 50,000 punch cards and create the data. And, and, and now when people would ask me, how come somebody else wasn't doing this? How come... There wasn't already a system based upon a regression analysis um, out there that people were using. At, at least now I was 100% certain that nobody else would have gone through this amount of work in order to try to produce a result. Were there any moments when you wanted to give up? I think that I wanted to give up every night when I would carry the racing forms over to the computer center at, um, at midnight, and it would, I think that was... You know, it rained every 1973. I think it rained every day from October through March. And um, yeah, it was, it was pretty awful. Um, so yeah, the work was, um, and plus keeping up with my schoolwork and trying to figure out what I was going to do. But I, I really just wanted, I, I had put in so much time at each level that I just really wanted to see the thing through to completion and see what would happen. When we ran the thousand races through it, and then the next day had our results printed out, that's when it got really exciting. Because at that point, we could say our percentage of winners was about 40%, and 
and the average payoff on our wins was about $6. That produced a profit of about 20% for each dollar bet, which is exactly what I'd hoped for in that it was now a matter of how many races could we bet on and how much money could we bet to produce the profit. That's a lot of numbers right there. But the gist of it is that my dad's system predicted the winner about 40% of the time. So it wasn't perfect. But if they won 40% of the time, that meant they would make a profit of 20 cents for every dollar they bet, which doesn't seem like much, but when you're betting thousands of dollars, it adds up. They now had the edge. The next step was to raise enough money to take advantage of that and see if the real world lined up with what their printout said. It was almost February, racing season. The night before the first racing day of the season, my dad performed what would soon become a ritual. He rode his motorcycle to Oakland to pick up a copy of the daily racing form, rode back to Berkeley, directly to the teletype computer they'd leased from GE, and spent the next three hours punching code. Next morning, opening day, my dad arrived at the racetrack, printout in hand. The computer had found two races where it could pick the winner, the second race and the seventh. I went with um, a bunch of my friends, and I was nervous because now this was the real thing. We sat through the first race, and the horse in the second race that was to be our bet was named Rockabye Duke. And um, I remember going up to the window and betting the $100, then sitting down and saying, okay, life is going to start now. And um, the race went off, and um, Rockabye Duke broke about third or so and sat there and moved up coming around the turn and um, they got down about halfway through the stretch and Rockaway Duke put his head in front by um, uh, a little bit and went down to the wire and very close call but Rockaway Duke won the race and there was wild celebrating I mean that was jumping up and down and you know high fives and saying wow this was the system in practice now in the movie version, is this where the music starts and it's a montage of you winning all these races? <laughs> of me jumping up and down and smiling and everybody hugging and, uh, you know, as if your own horse had won the Kentucky Derby or something. And that's why I still remember Rockaby Duke's name. Their winning bet to put a precise figure on their jubilation netted them about $300. They won the next race too, another $300. But there wasn't much time to celebrate, because the next day's daily racing form was coming out soon, and my dad needed to ride down to Oakland to pick it up. He made the trip about an hour and a half both ways, and then he went to the computer lab. It was time to start punching more cards. So the next day, I think we had one race all day, which was in about the eighth race, and um, uh, waited around to the eighth race, lost the race that day, went back the next day, probably won the race, I think. Um, but, there, but, but being at the track involved six or seven hours. First race would go off at one o'clock, and there would be about 40 minutes between races. 
So if you didn't have a horse in until the eighth race, first of all, you had to keep yourself from betting the other races because I knew that if I bet on the other races that were not computer-picked races, I, I'd lose The result was that after about a month, we had won probably exactly 40% of the races or maybe 42% of the races with about the same percentage that um, we thought we were going to have. And after that month period, we were up about um, um, maybe $1,000. $1,000 is pretty good for a month. But when my dad factored in the amount of time he was spending on the project, he realized he wasn't making much more than a decent hourly wage. They had succeeded, he and Patel. They had beaten the system. But the result was less a paradise of easy cash than a tedious job involving hours and hours of waiting around the racetracks. They needed to try something else. As the weeks wore on, and we could see that a certain amount of money was being made, um but a certain amount of time was being spent on this thing, we, we, we started kind of thinking about ways to raise the amount of money we were making. Because, you know, over a week's period of time, maybe, you know, we'd make 100 or $200, but that was in exchange for really a lot of work. And now what I began to see was that my original thought that the amount we could make was unlimited based on the amount that we bet well, I could now see the flaw in that thinking because the more you bet on the horse, the lower your payout on the horse is when he wins. They had hit a dead end. At the amounts they were betting, the payoffs weren't big enough to make it worth all the work. But if they tried to bet more, the odds would go down and they wouldn't make as much. Either way, it wasn't worth it. Now I was making this living. And what began to happen over the next you know, probably month or two months or so, was that, you know, some days there'd be one race. Sometimes if there was one race, we'd find that the horse had been scratched right before the race started. So this thing that had seemed so glamorous and unimaginable turned out to be just kind of very mundane and not a whole lot more than the hourly wage of a job. Yeah. A after, after many days spent there in the rain, and or in the sunshine, waiting between the races, um, I it, it really just kind of seemed like work to me to grind out that twenty dollars or fifty dollars a day, and I thought that as much as I had loved it, that I, it was best for me to put it aside and um, pursue something else. Was that a hard decision to make? It was very hard. Well. As the season moved along, the idea of doing something else began to take on a lot of appeal because I think this was kind of boring. Winning a race no longer had any meaning because we'd win a race, but I'd lose the next race. So even though there'd be a net profit in winning one out of the two races or one out of the three races, it just... It wasn't thrilling anymore. It wasn't as if I was now picking the winners. It was the computer picking the winners. 
And in order to get the computer to do that, you'd have to spend, you know, all that time with the inputting and the sitting around. So I, I, I'd say that it kind of lost its thrill. In the end, my dad decided to give it up. He went to law school. He's a tax lawyer now. All of which seems to confirm that Howard from the Gambler's Bookstore was right. No one has ever invented a system that could work over the long term. My dad and Patel's made it a couple steps farther than anyone else had. Not only did theirs work on paper, but it made money at the track too. Still, it couldn't generate the unlimited profits my dad had dreamed of. The trouble, as he now knows, is that there will always be too many variables to take into account. Even when you think you have them all, every statistic in the daily racing form, for example, another bunch crop up. A successful prediction is never as successful as you want it to be, or as you think. Did it make you think prediction was harder or easier than you expected? It, it made me think that it's possible to come up with um, theories for how things work, and, and it, but it's very, very difficult, and there's a big difference between a correct mathematical formula and carrying that um, formula out in practice. In practice, with the real world involved, you have all types of things interfering with your ability to execute. You have the fact that um, you can't get down your bed in time, that you have to go pick up the racing form someplace, that you're hungry and you want a hot dog, and um, the real world interferes with a printout of results that you're getting when you run a test of a, of a particular system. So now I view the execution and human desire to um, interfere with what the computer might say as being, um, I view the real world as being so such a strong um, influence that it's, 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 it's very tough to carry out uh, a prediction formula in real life, even if it works on paper. Um, very hard to work it in real life. I've got shoes with blown up laces. I've got knickers and a pair of braces. I'm all ready to run some races. Who's coming out with me? Who's coming out with me? Who's coming out with me? That is everything we have for you tonight. The show you just heard was produced by Daniel McDougall, Cassiana McClenahan, Bonnie Swift, Jonah Willingans, and myself, Charlie Mintz. It was engineered by Matt Larson. Thanks to everyone who contributed to our show tonight, Ben Eifert, Paul David, Howard from the Gambler's Bookstore in Las Vegas, where you can find everything to satisfy your gambling needs, and to my dad for telling that story. Original music for the show was written and performed by Andy Seymour, Jeff Stryker, and the band Pascal. For the generous financial support, we'd like to thank the Stanford Institute for Creativity and the Arts, Stanford's Oral Communication Program, Stanford Continuing Studies, and the Hume Writing Center. KZSU would like to thank the law offices of Fenwick and West. Remember that you can find a podcast of this and every episode of the Stanford Storytelling Project on Stanford iTunes and on our website, storytelling.stanford.edu. For the Stanford Storytelling Project, I'm Charlie Mintz. Thanks for listening. <laughs>